Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Joe, are you alive? Let's start there. Hal, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Hal? (laughs) We are coming to you from a point in time. Every point in time over the last many days has been its own year. Every second is a year. At the same time, there is no time. I take that back. Well, let's actually let's timestamp it because uh, I think that'll be important as people listen to this because they'll know that we're trying to record this as as close to drop time as we possibly can. But but because so much is changing so quickly in these days since the presidential election, who knows what will be by the time uh, you are listening to this? So it is Thursday afternoon. It is just after four o'clock in the east. It is one p.m. in the west. And maybe we get a new president this evening. Maybe we get one on Friday. Maybe it takes weeks. But so much has changed and nothing has changed since we last talked a week ago, Joe. And I think what there are a couple of things that that are very, very clear, even though so much remains unclear in this landscape. The thing that I think is clearest is uh, I will quote from our good buddy, Nick Bilton, when I say fuck the motherfucking polls, that we have a real polling and pundit problem in this country uh, that has been evident over the last few days. That certainly was the case in 2016. We had been assured by those famous pollsters that the that they had learned from the error of their ways. What is clear is that they did not learn enough. And we have a lot of work to do if we ever want to rely on polls again. I don't know that we should or can. Um, so that's one thing that I've taken away. The other thing I've taken away is we have some real soul searching to do. As members of the media, as Americans. And I think we have a lot to learn from each other about. I think we have a lot to work through. And I think... We have to really start understanding each other if this is not the way we want to be as a country. And I think that we can kind of both agree that this is not who we want to be. And so I think we need to like take the time to actually understand what is important to people in this country before we can sort of start to remedy what we think is lacking or wrong or headed in a direction that we don't feel comfortable with. Counterpoint? Do it. Trump, uh, as we sit here today, looks like he's on the brink of losing. And it was by in the, you know, we know that uh, the national numbers uh, don't make the election, but Biden got the most votes in the history, in the history of the country. Huge turnout. 
There was a lot of passion out there. It was not a blue wave. There were a lot of Senate seats that didn't materialize, a lot of fantasies that didn't happen, right? And Lindsey Graham is still in government, which, you know, for me is shocking. But at the same time, not shocking. It's South Carolina. What did you expect, right? And there's going to be soul searching, yes. There's going to have to be another hillbilly elegy part two, God help us. You know, I, I know that we need to sympathize uh, with voters or figure out the Democrats have to figure out how to reach deeper and find ways to communicate that don't make everybody feel alienated, right? And these are things are all true. That said, if Joe Biden wins, he cannot... I would suggest and recommend uh, become president um, and not uh, use whatever mandate that he would have and let himself be kneecapped by all of this self-doubt that the party could have because of the difference between what they got and what the polling said. Because at the end of the day, a win is a win, no matter how ugly it is. I agree. I agree. Actually, I feel like... I mean, the soul searching obviously needs to come from the representatives and the people who are campaigning because at the end of the day, those are the people who are on the ballot and those are the people who are communicating with people and their constituencies and that matters and those are the people who who affect change in Washington. I guess most of my hand wringing feels sort of like with the media and with pollsters because I, I you and I talked about this weeks ago, months ago, I don't know, all time feels the same right now. But I remember specifically having a conversation with you about how I felt like I spent a lot of time over, over in planes over the country, and I don't spend time in a plane in the middle of the country. And that's not really my job. We work for Vanity Fair. Yes, we have a responsibility to report on the whole country and the landscape, but we're not a we're not a newspaper. We're not a local news operation. Um, we're not a network. We cover the characters in the world in which we exist, and those people tend to be on the coast. But I think that the the this is the second election in a row where we have missed the voters. Mm-hmm. Not you and I, we, but media mm-hmm. in general have missed the voters, and I don't want to miss them again. Well, I don't. Did we, we miss, miss the them story. in the polls? We missed them in the polls, but there were plenty of stories in the New York Times and elsewhere. You get them. They're like. Let's go visit the sad working class guy whose tra- tractor was set on fire. You know, like we... Those stories happen. But but if you look at what proliferated on Twitter and on cable news, those were not the stories that had the most well, traction. there you're on The to blue something. wave had the yes, traction. that's true. But the, and there I, I agree with you. Social media as a expression of the media's thoughts and ideas is a broken tool, instrument. It's a broken thing. To what, Twitter is not real life, and I think that we are reminded time and time again during these election weeks just how divorced it is from actual reality, that it is such an echo chamber of people who think exactly like you do. And that's something that I think is really important to address. But let me take a step back. Let us take a step back. Can we talk about the fact that it could be imminently or maybe not, but Joe Biden, yes, by all accounts, seems to be our next president. What do we think? Well, as we stand here today, on the eve of it, on the brink of it, as you know, for the last 48 hours, everybody's been in a almost superstitious paralysis. 
in which they don't want to admit that it's real. They can't ex- will not accept that it's true. It's like a you know won't get fooled again. You know is the operative uh, feeling that people have, and they. But let's just say that at this moment, after I looked on CNN and they had a cry on, and it said. Um, it said Biden on the brink of win. So that's where CNN is right now. It appears we're on the brink. People we're talking to behind the scenes are saying it, it, it's a done deal. Now, that could be that media arrogance again. We don't know. We're a little like, uh, you know, we have trepidation. But let's just say as a little bit of feeling has leaked in about the possibility of this being true, as I've accepted it just by, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. There it is. Uh, it's... It's almost um, I, I I'm almost afraid to look at the, look how this is how kind of fucked up we are after four years. We're wounded. Yeah, we're wounded. You don't even want to um, admit that it could be real because of how fantastic it would feel to be out from under this oppressive horror show. And then at the same time, back to what you were saying about understanding all these other people, they probably feel the same way. We've you reverse the the coin, they're horrified, they're angry or whatever. But you know what? It doesn't mean that both sides are right. You know, I don't the Trump thing. It doesn't matter how popular it was. You know, like it, you know, Nazism was popular for a while. There's like things that are exactly that are right. that are popular that are wrong, and I just don't think that you can. Be a person of, uh, you know, integrity and decency and look at like the, you know, separation of children at the border, which is a big one for me. But any number of things, the lying, the, uh, you know, the stirring up of hatred in the streets to, you know, express your political will. That's not right. And if that were to, you know, to get a new leader who could bring the temperature down in this country— it's like, please, you know, please. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. I think that here's the thing. I had a, a conversation with a bunch of friends about this uh, on Wednesday. And they're friends who kind of fall on all sorts of sides of the political spectrum. Um, and the conversation was basically... Uh, the media missed this and the conversation of calling these people deplorables for the past four years has really turned them off and that people sort of see, need to start talking with, with more decency. And yes. to that I say, fuck that. Because <laughs> I think you can understand where people are and you can respect differences, but there is a huge difference, and I have said this a lot, but there's a huge difference between right and left and right and wrong. And I think it is within, it is our duty to understand the rest of the country and how people may be feeling and thinking, but that doesn't mean we have to think it's okay. And I think we're allowed to say, we hear you and what you're saying is wrong. And not wrong because we're smarter than you or wrong because you're a piece of uneducated trash, but wrong because racial injustice and systematic racism exist in this country. White supremacy is gaining 
traction in this country because we've had a leader who has fomented hate over the last five years. And that is not the direction we want this country to go. And so let's have someone who is able to turn the temperature down, as you said, and have these honest conversations where we're able to say, we understand where your anger is stemming from. How can we enact policies that help address the socioeconomic anxieties that you have that are potentially fomenting and foaming that hate up in these in these communities, in these people. And I think having that dialogue will be very important. And, and instead of sort of resigning to name calling, deplorable calling, that may not be the strategy, but I, I, I think that there's a big difference between labeling entire, entire swaths of this country as deplorables and then saying nothing at all because we're too scared of offending a large group of this country. I think it is our right to say something and it is the right thing to say something, but I think we have to sort of think about the way we're saying it so that it could actually be impactful and make a difference in how we relate to one another. I agree with everything you're saying, and I want to just add another kind of uh, filter to that, which is that Trump got a lot of Latino voters. I think I read that he got more black voters than any, you know, Republicans since like 1960, right? So I mean, so he he broadened. He had a very broad, a broader, you know, slice of the electorate than anybody would have imagined, given that race had been such a strong kind of narrative this year. But it occurred to me as I was thinking it over uh, afterwards. What am I taking away from this? And I started to think about um, it's bread and circuses. That's what Trump is. You know, he is a spectacle. And there is a long tradition of Americans being attracted to a spectacle. They want to be inside of a big top. They want to be uh, where there is a, you know, um, a guy who's eight foot tall and a person lifting barbells. They, you know, they want to they want to be a part of it because there's a sense of belonging to this big spectacle that looks fun and exciting. And we both know that Trump is politically incoherent, you know, and that's partly why he brought such a weird melange of people under that tent is because they weren't exactly there for the politics, you know. I mean, QAnon is a circus. It's just a entertainment. It's fiction. Right. And people don't care. Now, there's something scary about that because he was wielding that as power. And I guess what I'm starting, I'm saying is I think that, you know, you talk about the media um, doing some soul searching. Well, we were a part of this circus. We were a part of this spectacle. And there were those out there. And I, you know, cable TV is doing what it does, but it is a kind of expression of this, you know, our culture, our entertainment, political culture, and Trump, we've known all along, this is not a novel idea, has been the expression of that fusion of our politics and our entertainment thing. The idea that there's a sleepy Joe who Trump has declared will be boring. Well, thank God, you know what I mean? That's what we need is to not have politics at the center of every single man, woman, and child's life you know, so that we can actually focus on our lives, right? On our actual liberties. I have felt like I've not experienced this so-called freedom that the right talks about while they're waving the flag, because all we've had to do is sit there and deal with this. So for me, the, the promise of Joe Biden 
is that he's mature, you know, that he is an adult, that he is not somebody, sure, he's got an ego. I mean, that's, he's a politician, but he's not needing to consume attention like, you know, he's like a, a planet with its own gravitational pull. And to me, uh, we can talk about all these sort of issues on the side and who voted for him and or what lessons are we going to take away in terms of the demographics and everything. I think some of that is overstated because of the nature of his politics is not really political. You know what I'm saying? It's not really well, political. It's it's extra politics, That's right? right? It's it's beyond politics. And I think you're 100% right. I think maybe as we talk about it now and as I think through it now, potentially part of the reason why we actually weren't able to learn some lessons from 2016 is because we didn't have the time to fucking think for a second. Right. Right? Everything was on fire since since last election cycle. And it's very hard to learn those lessons when the temperature is turned up so much, not just for people who are reporting about it or polling about it, but for everyone in this country. He ratcheted up everything to such a degree that there was no room for rational thought. There was no room for nuanced debate. It was completely, completely beyond anything that allowed for normal life conversation, debate, disagreement. Everything was so polarized that you didn't really have time to actually take the time and reflect on on the numbers, on where the country was. And I think, I do not think that things snap back to normal if Biden no. does in fact pull this out. But I do think that there's going to be time to breathe. And I think that that, that breath will be absolutely essential for us to start to do the work that I think that we need to do. And I was literally, uh, I was writing something over the last few days and I was looking for a book uh, that I needed to to draw from and as I was trying to find the book on the on the various bookshelves in the house I was seeing all these fiction titles that I wanted to read that I had bought or that that Lee had bought here uh, and I haven't had a chance to read it it like it really stopped me I think this was on election day that I was looking for this and I used to read a book a week a fiction book a week mm. and it was my thing I just I like needed it to fall asleep every night it was so such a big part of my life I have not read more than I think four fiction books each year since Trump was elected and it's because I could not turn off my brain long enough or or put down my Twitter for long enough or stop writing the 17 million stories I had to write over the last four years long enough to actually sit and enjoy a fiction book. And I, I'm representative of all of our class of people. And I, I just want the ability to sort of turn off our brains and get the, the brain rest that is essential when we're making big decisions and having nuanced conversations. And I think that just having someone in office who allows us to turn off our brains when they need to turn off will be vital and I think we will see the effects of that pretty soon after there is, if there is a peaceful transfer of power. Right. Well, listen, Trump has operated on a kind of crisis politics. You know, he's created one crisis after another, both self-inflicted um, and just incompetently created, incompetence created. And in 2020, during this election year, 
you know, with COVID and everything else, it just, it's been all too much. Now, COVID's not going away anytime soon, uh, but at least we'll have somebody in there who's focused on it and treating it like a, a serious thing. And I'm sure that all of these people who voted for Trump, I'm not, I shouldn't say all these people who voted for Trump, there is going to be the, the MAGA people who are a much smaller slice of this electorate. I think there are people out there who voted for Trump, not because they are, you know, complete 100% cult devotees. They just, it was out of uh, self-interest, right? 100%. Most of them. And, you know, and also, by the way, because, and you and I probably know this from our travels, you're from Pennsylvania, I get around in the country, in the middle of the country a lot, and I, you know, end up staying at, um, you know, some kind of uh, hotel somewhere, and Fox News is playing all over this country, everywhere you go. Mm. That's what people are watching, and a lot of people. They have the highest ratings, and this is shaping what people think. And, uh, you know, by the way, <laughs> they're about to have to make some real interesting decisions. Uh, Beyond. In, in the way that they handle uh, this transition. Are they going to become a megaphone for Trump trying to deny the whole thing? You know, they're already, we saw a fissure because they called Arizona early, and now there's all this anger inside there, whether that translates into, hey, Trump's going to run off and start his own media company, and it's by the way, it's going to be competing with Fox, and Rupert's saying, bring it on. Well, that's not going to, uh, um, you know, so Fox is going to have to Go, undergo some transition, and that's going to transition. That could help shape or reshape how the Republican, you know, body thinks and operates as well. So, the, the prospect of all these things changing, of us coming out on the other side, and certain things start cooling off, other things will heat up, but a lot of things will cool down. This is inside the hive. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. By the way, we don't, you and I don't talk about this too much, but... Ooh, I'm excited. You know, I have no idea what's coming next. Well, there's a version of what has happened in this country that has affected the left. Mm. Uh, I mean, there has been some real um, overreaction and kind of like um, 
you know, policing of language and people's behavior and, you know, the takedownism that we see in the media, like on the left, too. I mean, uh, and I think some of that will cool off. I mean, so much of the kind of woke revolution has been a reaction to Trump. And I think a lot of that was good. It brought it out into the world and created narratives that needed to be there about feminism, people of color, gender, and sexuality. But, you know, they're the tools by which a lot of people operated has been to destroy people's reputations or spend their entire lives looking for people to do wrong so that they can, you know, uh, bring their power to bear, right? So I, I think on both sides, on the extremes of this country, are I think they will cool off with a Joe Biden. That's my hope. Well, Joe, Joe Biden is like the coolest candidate there is. I don't mean it as in like no. cool, he's not hip. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he's not, he's not, he's not it, but he is very cool. And I think you're, you're very right. I think that uh, things have been so undercorrected for so long that there had to be an overcorrection to, to eventually get to correct. Right. I do not think we're anywhere close to correct, but I think that you're starting to people you're starting to see people feel the overcorrection mm-hmm. and balk at the overcorrection. I'm not even talking about it at the, at the polls because it's very clear. I mean, at the ballot box, it's very clear that um, the, the wokeness does not play too m- much of America. And, and that sort of war is not appealing to most of Americans who are casting their ballot right now. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the, the sort of people that we are interacting with digitally or in person all the time. I think that you're, you're going to even start to see a tide turn in, in that circle. I, I want to go back to something you were saying about Fox News. Uh, I, I fully believe that it was Fox News on the ballot. Mm-hmm. I think that both positively and negatively, I think that uh, President Trump stands for nothing. And I think Fox News is ideological. And I think that much of what you hear President Trump repeating comes from Fox News. And then Fox News then repeats what the president says. And it's this crazy, vicious feedback loop. But it starts with Fox. And Fox is the one who came up with Sleepy Joe, right? And they're the ones who, I don't know if you saw that that video yesterday of the man in a tank top that said like barbecue and beers it had, he had a big beard and he was screaming that the Biden crime family was stealing the election. Right. And screaming at the top of his lungs in the middle of a uh, press conference about counting the votes. And hearing the phrase Biden crime family repeated with such ease, like it just totally rolled off of his tongue, mm-hmm. made me realize that all this, everything that we're seeing was sowed by Fox News and their ability to effectively brand insanity. Mm-hmm. And to completely appeal to people's base level of fear, paranoia, economic anxiety, systematic racism. Mm-hmm. It just they just like kind of like know how to tinker with everyone's internal badness in yeah. a really sophisticated way. So I, I truly believe that Fox News is on the ballot, but I will say, despite what we have seen this week, which seems to be a, a fairly measured Fox News on the news side of things. Mm-hmm. Fox News tends to do its best work when they are in opposition. They are better at bringing someone in the White House down than supporting someone in the White House. And so I think it's going to be a tough road ahead 
if you do have a Democrat in the White House. It's not going to be smooth sailing, and I don't think we should expect that. This is where Fox News tends to thrive. But I think... Well, that's interesting. So many ills that we face. Yeah, so many ills that we face are are a direct result of Fox News. And it it is sickening to thinking to think about how much they have impacted this this world, yeah. this country and how much they will continue to do that. This is Inside the Hive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very 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 bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. One other thing that I wanted to, to touch on is how you spent your election night, your election week. What you did on Tuesday, what you've been watching. I know you have CNN CNN now on mute as we record this. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious what your experience was this week. How you're feeling. What what was your roller coaster of emotion? I feel like I went through like 16 different versions of myself. Well, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, first of all, I was planted in front of the television and I was uh, drinking alcohol and eating. What were you drinking? I was drinking wine and I was eating cookies that my daughter had mm-hmm. made. And I was just, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, nutritionally treating myself horribly. But I just, mm. you know, I was having to just give myself something to run on. And I was up until like 2.30 in the morning. Um, mm. And the feelings were, as I'm sure many of our listeners had, a horror at potentially seeing a 2016 remake. I think the first wave of it was, oh my God, is this a 2016 remake? Mm. Um, and because of the Florida numbers that were coming in. And then, of course, that sort of veered as the night progressed. And I was heartened, actually, and to go back to Joe Biden for just a moment, that he came out at 1230 and you know made a speech about, I think we, you know, we're looking good. We feel good about this, but let's count the votes. Responsible, like a normal, mature, adult human being would do. And then, of course, on the other side was the maniac saying, mm-hmm. you know, it's all a fraud. And if I don't win, you know, uh, it doesn't count. So that's where that left us. And then I would say in the last 48 hours, you know, we've just been like a nation of, and I have been, I mean, I've learned more about geography in the last 48 hours than I ever really cared to know. I mean, about the county mm. by county, uh, you know, Arizona, county by county, Pennsylvania, county by county. In any event, uh, I can't say that my life and my attention to cable and Twitter have really been just one thing. I, I've like really let a lot go, I have to say, and I feel a little bit guilty about that. But, you know, that's I feel 
um, like I've been at the like I said at the top, trapped in this both in a timeless, you know, um, paralysis uh, where time does not move forward. But you had a much more interesting night than I did. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, I feel like my my night felt sort of similar to yours. I also feel I don't have kids, but I know this from my sister who had kids who I was there with. But it, tell me if I'm wrong. It sort of feels like the period after you have a baby where like you're just like you excuse all sorts of bad behavior mm-hmm. and like nothing yeah. matters. You eat whatever you want. You sleep when you can sleep, which is not very much. And you don't really leave your house and you're kind of like trapped there. That sort of has that vibe to it mm-hmm. for me. Uh, like no one's brushing their hair. Like maybe yeah. you're showering, maybe you're not. You brush your teeth at 4 p.m. That kind of mm-hmm. feel. Um, yeah, I had a I had a little bit of a crazy election day night. Um, so I spent the last few days basically on one nonstop phone call with who I will call Trump's ghosts. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time talking to Michael Cohen. I spent a lot of time talking to Stephanie winston Golkoff. I spent a lot of time talking to Sam Numberg. These are all people who were at one time and for a long time very close to Donald Trump, to Melania Trump, to their families, integral members of mm-hmm. their business and lives and inauguration and administration and campaigns. And I sort of wanted to get a sense from these people who have made so much news and know so much about the Trumps and how they operate a, like, what what is different in their lives today than it was four years ago when they were all sort of in pretty good favor with the Trumps and what they expected Trump to be feeling. And it was fascinating. I think one of the, the hallmarks of this era for me that I think about all the time is how much collateral damage Trump has left around him. He is a fucking wrecking ball, right? Yeah. He just, he has left so much in his wake I wanted to to find out from them what this felt like for them. And part of it is these are incredibly interesting people. And they gave me a lot of good stuff, which I'll get into in a second. But but also, their lives are kind of hanging in the balance right now in a way that, yes, all of our lives will be incredibly impacted by whatever it is that, that voters in this country have decided. But their lives are especially impacted by whatever the decision may be if Donald Trump wins re-election. I mean, Michael Cohen is currently home on home confinement. The the Justice Department in Trump's administration tried to take Cohen back to jail for weeks this summer for publishing a book that was going to criticize the president. Mm-hmm. These are not people who are casual about their revenge. And the Trumps feel like, you know, Michael Cohen and Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff have a lot to say about them. They are not people who take criticism lightly. And so if if Trump is in office again and completely unchecked, then then that's a scary proposition for these people. So we talked all through that, which I thought was fascinating. What I also thought was really interesting was sort of like the the then and now of it. So last yeah. election, 2016, Michael Cohen was at the victory party with Trump. It was sort of his first sign that Trump was going to oust him. Yeah. Uh, that he wasn't invited to the really super secret 
internal party. And so he sort of got a sense that he wasn't going to be going mm-hmm. with him on his next part of his journey. Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff was there texting with Melania the whole night. Melania would ask her days later to plan the inauguration, which ended up being probably the decision she regrets most in her life. And Sam Numberg was on TV last election night in Times Square, left, got wasted at Dorian's because he was really unhappy to not be part of the whole winning campaign. And he's two and a half years sober now and in a very, very different place. And so a lot has changed. Um, I've written a story about it for The Hive, uh, which is super fun. It has a lot of really great quotes and explains all of this. All of that is to say, we've met some really interesting characters over the last four years on this journey. It makes me excited for the potential of a new cast of characters that we could get to follow. Oh, dear or Lord. Or not. Yeah. Honestly, maybe we don't want to. Well, you know, the I don't think the Trump characters, and, you know, that's a pretty broad cast there outside of even Trump and his family. I mean, there's all these Trump-imprinted politicians besides Trump's inner circle and, and pals. I mean, I think that Trump's children, or as Jake Tapper has been hilariously calling them on CNN, his spawn uh, mm. are going to be... Well, it's weird. I'll yeah. tell you why he does that. Why? And I, Because I, I get dinged for this all the time. I refer to, to them as Trump's children because they are his children. And people on Twitter criticize me all the time saying, they're not children, they're adults. Right. So that's why he's saying that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, he calls... Sometimes he calls them offspring. But, you know... Offspring's great. They'll be monitored for years. And, mm. uh, you know, there will be... Um, as we have t- talked about many times, probably socially ostracized um, in certain quarters, <laughs> certainly in New York. I'm going to uh, poke. I'm going to pu- push back. Yeah, tell me about Here's that. Here's what I think. Here's my reporting. First of all, Michael Cohen said to me this morning as we were sort of talking through all this stuff. Uh, you know, Eric Trump and Lara Trump were in Pennsylvania with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, talking about the lawsuits they're going to file and how this election has been stolen from them in Pennsylvania, which I, that if that's the crew you're sending, then God yeah. bless. But the James Baker type person that Jared was saying he yes. was going to find. <laughs> they settled on Rudy, so that's where they are. Uh-huh. Uh, Laura Trump looked terrified. Like she, I, I don't think she's ever looked so serious in her entire life. Michael's observation was because she, this is because she knows what could be coming for them financially in terms of investigations mm-hmm. that are happening. Yeah. It just, the the road ahead looks very different than the road to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I think that's true. I will tell you, there is a much larger secret MAGA pack of the Upper East Side than you would think. And I don't think that, I think that the average person in New York will not want Jared Ivanka walking around up there on Park Avenue, but there is a big enough portion of people who are just okay to invite them back in their circle. And I think part of it is because they feel like the Trump administration benefited them financially and that's really all they care about. Mm -hmm. And then some of it is all those fucking people have skeletons in their closet, right? Like, we're talking about the the Wendy Dangs of the world. Yeah. We're talking about people who are married to Russian oligarchs. Like, their friends are bad, too. And so if everyone were to judge each other on only having friends who are noble, solid, law-abiding, morally 
encompassed individuals, then they wouldn't be able to talk to anyone in their social circle. So I think that there are more people who are willing to welcome them back than than you and I could rationally imagine, but it's I, not really a that, rational That thing. may be true. Um, I guess the question will be, how much media interest will there be in their soap operas when they are off the center of the power map? I mean, um, you know, obviously people will do it, but I think also, you know, will people be sick of it? Will they want to hear more about um, the Trump spawn uh, once they've sort of, you know, listen, I'm if they, next year at CPAC, they could be there. And of course, people will cover it and they will be political figures like John Jr. He could rise from the ashes and be like Trump 2.0 and he'll stay in the mix. Sure. And, and they, you know, they, and it kind of depends on whether they decide to wield their post-presidential powers in the media as a media company or as media figures or try yeah. to, uh, I don't think they're organized or disciplined enough to uh, kind of um, mint new political figures with any kind of like uh, focus, you know, because they don't, like as we said before, I don't think they're a coherent political people, you know, it's, it's yes. their celebrity so the question is, does that celebrity translate into the gossip pages and the page six like it used to be in Manhattan? Or do they actually build off of this to create, as somebody said in our sort of uh, piece, you know, we had a piece on The Hive about speculative endings for the Trump family, and we had all these mm. fantastic writers. You know, one of them was like that these guys would start Apprentice 2024, and we're going to <laughs> we're going to find the next presidential uh, candidate for the next, you know, for 2024. Um, my hope, which is like, again, uh, I've been optimistic, um, but it's I've only been barely uh, justified in my <laughs> in my optimism so far. My hope is that they would just go away, but I guess it's just not going to happen. Here's what I think. As someone who has spent so much time writing about them, if I never wrote their names again, I would be a happier person. I'm so sick of writing about them. I'm sick of talking about them. I'm sick of covering them. I have spent just, you couldn't even imagine how much time I've spent thinking about them, talking about them, writing about them. I think that there could be something delicious to like writing about what the next phase of their life is yeah. at an appropriate point when there's <laughs> enough time that has gone by. Yeah. But But here's what I know about them. And all of my reporting about them, I feel like I've come to a, a solid conclusion. This is the Trump family in a nutshell. This is the way I think about it. Fred Trump wanted to be rich, so he started a business and he became rich. Donald Trump was born rich because of Fred, and all he wanted was to be famous. The next, the offspring, the spawn of Trump, were born rich and famous, and so they want to be powerful. And, and that has been sort of my organizing principle and how I think about them and how I explain them and why Ivanka wanted to be in the White House and why Don Jr. wanted to be on the campaign trail. They want to be relevant. They want to be powerful. They want to do something more than just be on reality television. But I also know that they don't have that much money coming into the Trump organization anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're going to see this very interesting thing where I do think that they want to continue to hang on to the power that they've amassed over the last five years. 
but they also need to figure out a way to make money off of that. So I think we'll see some sort of, I don't know, some striving to to hit both of those marks. This is Inside the Hive. Can I throw in uh, 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 an interesting um, kind of wrinkle in all of this? which Which is the uh, decision that a Joe Biden administration would need to make is whether or not, you know, they're going to, the SDNY, Southern District of New York, is going to be going mm-hmm. after Trump. You know, there's on, on financial uh, matters. Uh, Could be. Possibly, you know, f- fraud and accounting fraud, who knows, but what, whether or not the Joe Biden administration decides, you know what, we need to have a truth and reconciliation commission here. Let's find out mm. what kind of things went on here, what kind of crimes were committed, Extra legal things happened under this administration. The damage done. Let's assess the damage. What is the truth of what these people did? This is something that's also going to be a narrative in the media, I would say, for the next two years. And so take your idea of them wanting to stay rich and powerful, and that's a narrative, and they're on Park Avenue, and some people accept them, uh, you know. And on the other one is they're running for cover. They're running for legal cover that there's a Senate committee that's decided we're going to investigate these guys. And we want to know what the truth is or the Justice Department. You know, Biden has said, I might just throw it to the Justice Department, let an objective kind of, uh, you know, investigators take care of it and see what they come up with and decide what we want to do. Well, there's going to be a call for heads on platters and blood in the streets for these guys. Uh, I mean, and now the question for Biden will be, do I want to... Uh, you know, poke that hornet's nest. You know, he got 70 million votes or 70 million people voted for Trump. So, you know, that's a whole lot of people. You don't want to alienate them or alienate the core. But I do think that uh, that is going to be a big uh, demand for a large portion of the country to know uh, what's the bottom line here and does this guy need to be thrown, you know, Let's go out to the outer limits of that. <laughs> Does this guy need to be in an orange sure. jumpsuit? You know, so um, which I, you know, I don't think anybody listening to this will be surprised to know that I would. I think that's probably an appropriate um, response. And uh, now uh, I'm watching your dog jump up and lick your face, <laughs> and it's kind of an amazing thing. Um, we she need we me. need these latter moments. I was just talking about putting the president in in prison so let's uh she is perfect comedic timing (laughs) i um here's what i think it will really depend on if the broader public can start to to trust our institutions again right Mm -hmm. because what joe biden should do is he should say to his uncorrupt justice department Mm -hmm. let the chips fall where they may if you guys want to prosecute something prosecute something if you have the evidence to bring a case against someone who committed crimes prosecute those crimes like that's that's what he should say he shouldn't say go after my political enemies yeah that would be terrible but he should say do your job and if their jobs lead them to prosecuting someone you're right who happened to hold that office and that's their job you're exactly the right. question is when he when he says that and i believe he should say that do people trust the department of justice enough mm-hmm. to do the right thing and to actually just follow the well, they'll never the be, you'll never please everybody. You'll never please everybody. Totally. And it'll be a partisan you can, thing. There's no getting around it. Um, yes. I feel like we have gone too far 
from people trusting our government over the last few years Mm -hmm. to ever get to a place where half this country doesn't think that there's a political exercise. And that is what I think is the lasting sad Mm -hmm. impact of a president trump is that he has created so much mistrust over the good Mm -hmm. fine people serving our country Mm -hmm. that i worry we never get to a place again where we can just trust uh, you know career bureaucrats career politicians career people who have served this country for many 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 years before donald trump ever set his sights on the white house and that's a that's a real shame yeah, let me just read you two things. I, you know, I've been watching CNN. Moments ago, Joe Biden came Tell out me. and he gave a little um, press conference a little while ago. Uh, part of it was to say he'd been in a meeting all day about COVID-19, which, you know, <laughs> great. God bless him. He's like a, uh, you know, actual responsible guy thinking about the 100,000 mm. people who uh, con- were, you know, reportedly contracted COVID today, today, Ugh. the highest number of any nation in the history of this disease. He came out and he said, uh, he was talking about the election results, of course. Everybody's got that on their mind. The senator and I, he's talking about uh, Kamala Harris, continue to feel very good about where things stand. We have no doubt that when the count is finished, Senator Harris and I will be declared the winners. And this is the good part. So I ask everyone to stay calm, all people to stay calm. The process is working. The count is being completed. And we'll know very soon. So thank you all for your patience and blah, blah, blah. So he, he's, he went out to lower the temperature, okay, and to give people a sense of calm and act like a responsible adult. Now, Chris Smith, our, our Hive political reporter, uh, right after that tweeted something that I want to read here because it's smart. He said, one of the smart things about Joe Biden's post-election moves and words is that they implicitly recognize 70 million Americans voted for his opponent and— He's probably, he says, going to be dealing with a GOP Senate majority. So he's trying to lower the temperature and set the stage. I mean, mm. that's true. I mean, and, and to the degree that Biden's campaign promised that he would try to work with both sides is a real thing. And it seems like it probably will have to be, you know, and then we're going to learn whether the other side can even engage in that. Right. Will Mitch McConnell, who's already said that he's going to try to stop you know, uh, any potentially too far left, you know, cabinet uh, nominations uh, because he doesn't want, you know, the progressive left and socialists to, uh, you know, take over the government or whatever. I mean, is he going to negotiate with Joe Biden? Are these guys going to be able to get into a room and have a rational conversation and then not go out that door and then feed their respective media outlets to, you know, keep fanning the fires? We just don't know. But I think that we know that Trump can't and won't. In fact, he did the opposite. So that's the hope of Joe Biden. That's the promise of Joe Biden. That's why I'm hoping once we cross over the threshold, <laughs> we can be filled with that feeling of potential, potential to repair these things that we've been talking about. I think he, you're, you are right. I think Joe Biden has been pitch perfect I think he has been incredibly disciplined in his messaging over the yeah. over the whole campaign, pretty much, but particularly in the last few days. I, to your point about whether or not Mitch McConnell will do the right thing, I think we kind of yeah. history is sort of a good mm-hmm. pre- predictor of what what is to come. I think if Joe Biden is smart, obviously the the most pressing thing that he will have to handle 
will be their response to COVID-19. And I, I have to say the most, the thing that I'm really looking forward to is having adults and scientists be the one to handle this next very important stage of the virus if we do in fact see Joe Biden as president. But if Joe Biden is smart, he will pass an infrastructure bill. Mm. I don't know that there will be support enough. Infrastructure for that in the week, Senate. January twentieth. But maybe Infrastructure Week will actually be Infrastructure Week, right? How great would that be? It would help so many people in this country. It would help the economy. It would help so many people who have felt disenfranchised. And and that disenfranchisement has led them to vote for Trump because they felt like they're completely left behind by the economy. It would just be such a wonderful thing. All people and all parties should support that. That is my plea to an administration in the next go around. I think that would be a very wise thing to focus on. But we're just podcasters, Joe. We're not lawmakers yet. No. And I will just say, as we end out this conversation, democracy kind of worked this week. Oh, yeah. And it didn't feel good this whole week because I think it was a lot closer than many people expected. I think we all have PTSD. We're all sort of damaged goods. And it's taken a long time. We're now in Thursday afternoon and we don't know. And, you know, tensions are so high. Emotions are so high. The nervousness is real. None of us are sleeping. We're eating like shit. But democracy worked. People were able to vote in a pandemic and more people than ever before cast their ballots. Mm -hmm. That is a really cool thing. That's a really great thing. This country is resilient. I'm excited to see what we can all do when we're all engaged. Oh, man. I agree with you all the way, and I want to point out that as these returns come in and we see places like Pennsylvania flipping to Biden and we see Georgia on the knife's edge and these other places we've looked, you've got just a huge, huge turnout of African-Americans who had had their votes suppressed for so long, they broke through and they may be the ones who send Biden over the top. And it speaks to what happened this summer. It speaks to the passion uh, of people who were got involved in this election. And, you know, the promise of democracy is exactly this. And you know what? It may not feel uh, like blue wave ecstatic, but the truth is politics isn't supposed to be entertainment. It's not supposed to be fun every minute. You know, it's and most of the time. It's boring. It should be boring. I'm ready for boring Sleepy Joe politics. Bore me. Bore me, bore me, bore me. That's, okay, that's our mantra. We're going to like uh, see how that far that takes us. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get a lot of more podcast readers when we just start talking about all the boring politics. But uh, you know what? We're going to be talking about other things besides politics. And that is also the promise of Joe Biden. From your mouth to God's ears. Joe, I'm going to get back to my terrible television yes. consumption habit. Yeah. And watch these returns roll in. Yes. Next week, we could have a very different world. We could have a very different world. In fact, this entire podcast is kind of like a time capsule that we're sort of throwing out there. Uh, and we don't know what it will sound like to the ears of people who are hearing it this weekend. Well, we'll know, we'll know more next week. I'm excited to talk to you about the updates. And until then, stay safe, stay bored. Keep the faith. 
that's our episode this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. What would I do without her? Or our producer, Bob Tabador of Cadence 13. If you're enjoying Inside the Hive, go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Inside the Hive. We'd like to thank our sponsors. Please give them the love they give us here at Inside the Hive, and we will catch you next week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.